Hi there, and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Lung ultrasound has become an increasingly popular mode of investigation over the past decade, particularly at the bedside. But what can it really tell us? Robert Arnfield is an intensivist and traumatologist from the London Health Sciences Centre in Ontario, Canada, and he joins me to shed some light on this emerging diagnostic tool. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Todd. Rob, what is the place of lung ultrasound in critical care? It's been around for you know a decade and slowly taking hold, but where does it sit in the landscape as it stands? Yeah, when I first encountered lung ultrasound, I was uh, actually fairly underwhelmed with it, uh, artifact-based, not particularly uh, sightly as compared to its uh, you know older sibling echocardiography that was much sexier to look at. Um, but the the lung ultrasound field is uh, for those who dwell in it long enough. It, it's it's a it, it can be a bit of an acquired taste at the deep level, um, which we can get into. But at the the very basic level, um, it is a method uh, through which ascertaining the cause or the absence of causes of respiratory failure can be achieved in moments, where sometimes moments in the ICU can feel like days. Uh, when you're waiting for a portable radiograph to arrive, those 10 minutes, five minutes in the best units in the world, but often 30 minutes or longer in some of the even very good hospitals in Europe I've been to, um, you know, it was untenable. And uh, so the imaging mechanisms to exclude something as simple as pneumothorax uh, has cognitive unloading uh, sort of effect that is, is, you know, unattainable through any other physical exam method. And so the, the, we use that lung sliding and pneumothorax assessment as sort of the gateway drug into lung ultrasound in the ICU. But it becomes so much more than that as you start exploring the rest of the chest and uh, applying the probe elsewhere. Rob, what sort of um, pathologies is ultrasound for the lung capable of picking up? Yeah, so the, I might, I'm, terminology is really important in this space, Todd. So um, for those of us, at least in North America where I am, you know, diagnostic is the term that gets applied to anything done in a comprehensive workflow, such as a radiologist or um, in an imaging uh, space, whereas, you know, for us, it's still goal directed at all times. And so depends on your clinical question, Todd. Um, and so um, the, you know, as I said, the the presence or absence of, of lung sliding or pneumothorax is sort of the very you know, very early stage kind of thing. But we tend to use this a lot anymore for the distinction between um, atelectasis, is there, a, pardon me, the, the, the presence of atelectasis or consolidation on in the lungs that might reflect uh, cause of shunt or hypoxemia and often informs uh, recruitment maneuvers uh, in our unit, which despite trials that support uh, or refute the idea of recruitment maneuvers in all comers, we find it readily available to identify uh, good candidates for higher uh, mean airway pressures through lung ultrasound or candidates for chest physiotherapy, as the case may be. Um, And so those are are very obvious choices. And of course, in the advent of the pandemic or in the time of the pandemic, we have the identification of, um, of of infectious features of, of of COVID or or similar diseases with the the pathological B lines that exist there. So really, the the approach is to take the probe to the chest, assimilate a series of findings 
and um, uh, whether they be lung sliding or these B lines that many people have heard so much about if they aren't fluent with lung ultrasound or the presence of any de-aeration such as atelectasis or, or consolidation. And, and you kind of piece it all together into a, a package that allows you to, to weigh in on things like diuresis and uh, as I mentioned already, mechanical ventilation strategies, um, as well as uh, actual anatomic diagnoses like pneumothorax. Now, we were talking prior to the interview about the conservatism of healthcare. Um, with many new interventions like this, uh, there's a hesitancy to adopt them until there is evidence to support them. Where does the evidence for lung ultrasound at the bedside stand as it, as it is at the moment? Yeah, so um, the, the evidence for its use is, uh, most people would argue, steeped in the accuracy as compared to CT scan literature that's out there. And so there's a number of uh, reasonably well-conducted studies that would 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 point to uh, superiority of lung ultrasound over radiography for effectively all diagnoses um, and much closer to CT scan level accuracy. And so that literature has, um, you know, been replicated in a number of different centers in a number of different uh, regions of the world. Um, so I think it's fair to say that I consider lung ultrasound in a trained operator's hand to be um, equivalent to a portable CT scanner. Now, the, the downside is that it, it portrays images in sort of a piecemeal, portrays the chest in a piecemeal fashion. So the attraction of chest radiography is undeniable in its anatomic portrayal of a, of a sort of 20,000 foot view of the, of the, the, the chest and mediastinum. Um, but it, 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 as one of my colleagues says, there's lies, damn lies, and then there's chest x-rays. Um, and, and certainly we, we, I, the number of cases where the x-ray has betrayed us in terms of life-threatening pathology, often in the form of, uh, of, 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 uh, low bar atelectasis or consolidation that is relatively uninteresting on radiography. That is actually the culprit problem for someone's demise, um, is, is, uh, it's too, it's too rich to give up. And so that those moments are touchstones that have created widespread uptake of lung ultrasound at those centers who have begun to explore it. So it's a bit of a, as I said, it's a bit of a gateway drug. You get in, you see a few cases, and then and then you, can, you can't function without it in some ways if you're someone who prides themselves on bedside diagnostic precision. Now, it is an interpretable um, medium, isn't it? And one of the, the concerns about chest examination in general is the intra-observer uh, reliability. What's the issue with that in in lung ultrasound? Yeah, the the the, the reliability piece uh, we struggle with in lung ultrasound, and we've studied that with um, with some experts. And everyone's very good at um, at recognizing what they see on the screen. So whether it's B lines or a consolidation pattern or a pleural effusion, um, where people disagree is uh, integrating it into a unified diagnosis. And, um, and and that's not unreasonable because we have to remember that no imaging modality tells the difference between pneumonia and atelectasis, for instance. Um, there are supportive features, definitely the very strong supportive features in the right clinical scenario. But if you read a CAT scan of the chest, which is the gold standard for chest imaging, it reads like a laundry list of of, of vernacular. It's it's there's a bit of this, there's a bit of that, there's a bit of this, and and yeah, sometimes there's a hard diagnosis. There is also a pneumothorax, or there is a pleural effusion, 
But ultimately, ground glass opacities in the left upper lobe and, and some consolidation in the right lower lobe doesn't tell me what's wrong with the patient. Um, and so, nor does long ultrasound. And so, the, the disagreement I would challenge to be probably no better, no worse than other chest imaging modalities, of course, without the radiation um, and adding in some portability and speed, which is certainly the, the upside of using long ultrasound. And one of the key phrases you used before was a trained operator. What does it take to become um, good at, at lung ultrasound? Yeah, and there's some good studies on on training uh, out there, and I, I won't do them all justice. I could, I certainly know my own literature a bit better, but the um, you know we've we've we in North America have respiratory therapists, which I know are not a, a common entity or an entity at all in many parts of the world, including in Australia and New Zealand, but. Um, you know, we trained these non-medical professionals who are otherwise very talented with ventilators and with their stethoscopes um, to be able to identify the cardinal lung ultrasound artifacts like lung sliding and A-lines or B-lines after, after a very short course of a couple hours and 10 studies, um, 10 applied studies. And, and so the answer to the question is lung ultrasound done for um, for sort of basic questions such as the presence or absence of B-lines or pneumothorax very, very rapid learning curve. Where the imaging uh, gets difficult to interpret and to acquire is when you start looking in the pleural spaces, which relies more heavily on identifying the diaphragm, and there's a lot more nuance, and it starts to more closely resemble, I think, the learning curve of echocardiography, where getting the window is actually more of a challenge, and therefore, we, we know there's a, a, a steepness there that is, is, um, requires much more training. So if I were thinking about how to train the masses in this from medical students to, you know, to consultants and, and attending physicians, I would divide it into the, the easy questions and then the harder questions, uh, maybe similar to a transthoracic versus transesophageal echocardiography model. Um, you know, there's some stuff for the basic people that they can do almost right away. And then the, the the deep cuts of plural pathology requires more training. Uh, are there established pathways to to learning how to do lung ultrasound? And do you believe that this is something that we need to certify people before they start uh, making clinical decisions on the results of their scans? So, Todd, you used the C word there, which is um, you know a, a, a nuclear term in in the in the adoption of any any medical procedure. I think, and um, certainly, I'd say that unequivocally, community in critical care ultrasound uh, strongly strongly opposes the notion of certification because it it works against accessibility. Um, certainly, those with financial interests in creating certification pathways. Um, are, you know, are, are in favor of it. Um, but, you know, interesting, the interesting thing about lung ultrasound is that, of course, it doesn't belong to anyone else. It was only founded by, you know, arguably entirely by Daniel Lichtenstein a little over 20 years ago. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's an original point of care modality that belongs to everybody. And so certification calls for imaging, especially echocardiography, typically arise from the, the legacy sort of training infrastructure of, of that modality, whereas lung ultrasound, again, is, is sort of a democratic um, uh, tool that way. So I don't feel there's much cry for the certification of lung ultrasound. Most people are interested in vetted competency pathways and, and you know, like all ultrasound and all procedures, it's a, it's a, it's a combo platter of 
you know, intense boot camp training up front with some with a long tail of, of supervised learning, um, which gets people across the goal line of being competent with this tool. So I would be say no to certification and yes to a structured curriculum. Where do you see this into the future? Is this the sort of thing that we should be teaching at an undergraduate level? And would we be imagining that uh, medical students and, and junior doctors are ultimately using this at the bedside as part of their routine practice? I think if you're able to conduct bedside examination of the lungs, um, uh, you know, it, it becomes difficult to justify using a hollow tube with a with a diaphragm on the end of it to make decisions on any important uh, scenarios in 2021. Um, it's and so I think if you're going to bother examining patients and not simply deferring to um, CT scanning, uh, which you know of course is is hard to resist in many centers for many complex questions, then I think we should really move towards something like lung ultrasound, which is obviously recordable, uh, so it can be shared. Uh, it's also obviously highly visual, so people can, you know, all be share in the experience, which is unlike stethoscopy, where one person reports some some sort of litany of words to describe the sounds they heard, and other people have a slightly different vernacular for it, and 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 so it's a largely a, a dying language, I think, in many ways. Um, so so, and and the last piece I'll say is that it's a storytelling device, ultimately that. Um, I, I must say that, yeah, the, the being able to see the lungs under distress um, as they as they consolidated and trying to breathe, and you see the diaphragm move, and you can you can you brought into the the pathology in a way that no static imaging modality permits, and is oddly hypnotic. And so, for those reasons, um, it, it calls for action, appropriate action, when. Uh, a haziness on a chest x-ray would be easily forgettable. Seeing a consolidated lung with dynamic air bronchograms occupying a entire lobe of someone's chest, you realize, oh, this is why they're hypoxemic and, 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 and you can explain it away. Um, and so for all those reasons, I think it's advisable that we, we have used this as a common language at the point of care. I, I wish to stop short of being a zealot by all means in this modality. So there may be a better tool that comes out tomorrow in the meantime, but ultimately lung ultrasound is a call to look forward and not backwards with the bedside assessments we use for the lungs. And until a better tool arrives, I think this is the tool we should invest in at the med ed level and in our uh, overall cultural shift within acute care medical specialties. Now, you mentioned the word tool there. Um, what are the appropriate tools to this? We're seeing an emergence of uh, handheld devices that plug into your mobile device, for example. What are the basic level uh, tools that would be required to, to practice this at scale? Yeah, the handheld devices certainly open things up a great deal. And, uh, you know, the, um, they, you know, I think that, that will lead to a great proliferation of the use of lung ultrasound. Um, but ultimately, you need a machine and you need a set of lungs and you need a motivated operator in a culture that will acknowledge the findings. And that's the biggest wrinkle for any um, adoption of any point of care ultrasound techniques that, that I've uh, sort of overseen is, you know, you can bust your hump to be able to, uh, to to display some images. And if whoever you report to doesn't acknowledge or doesn't understand, then it's obviously useless. And so, um, you know, this is the, uh, the, the sort of the irony or the, the difficulty of, of those who do 
uh, perhaps invest in this skill. Um, and even in the hardware, perhaps their own personal device, you have to acquire the long ultrasound images. But if if they don't have the sovereign ability to make decisions based on those images and are running them through someone else who doesn't subscribe to that school of thought, then then that's where good ideas go to die is in that sort of uh, that that unfortunate milieu of the flipped hierarchy that we see with younger physicians often outpacing the adoption of uh, more sophisticated methods of, of answering bedside questions than their older colleagues. And you mentioned that um, that this is a uh, uh, a modality that's really been born in the critical care and emergency fields. It's our own in many ways. Um, are we still at the, the the start of this journey, or have we learned as much as we're likely to learn in bedside ultrasound? Um, yeah, I think I think I do think that a great amount of lung lung particular. I, I think there's more yet to come, although it is uh, sort of limited by a lot of the artifacts that we see. Um, but like with all imaging modalities, um, you, know, you know, there's more than what we can see. Uh, that is present in those images. And so that's where ultimately artificial intelligence will aid us in perhaps extracting additional rich features that are not evident to us. But on the broader question of point of care ultrasound that you raise, I mean, certainly we're, we're um, you know, I wouldn't say we're quite embryonic. We're a bit, maybe a bit more closer to uh, our tween years or early adolescence with uh, ultrasound adoption and figuring out the place for not simply the, the heavy hitters like echocardiography and lung ultrasound or fast exams, but, you know, neurosynology with transcranial Doppler techniques, um, which have a lot of promise to get again, elevate our bedside assessment of the brain's function um, and, and other sort of more seemingly boutique applications, what were, would have been considered boutique 10 or 20 years ago, are now finding their way into to slightly more common adoption. So I do think that, that we will see a long tail of some of the point-of-care ultrasound techniques being uh, applied in the next decade or two. Um, you've written previously about the use of transesophageal ultrasound to explore the lung. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's um, transesophageal, and we spell esophagus with an E here in Canada, um, unlike uh, you down there, Todd. So we it has an acronym of TELUS, uh, which I guess would be TOLUS in, uh, down in Australia, which I feel like might not be quite as catchy, but you tell me. Um, ultimately, yeah, it, it, it seems like it could just be a party trick, and the, and the world is full of people who you know, just repurpose a gadget and call it something new and 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 publish about it. And, and so I want to be very clear that the use of the transesophageal probe to look at the lungs um, affords the ability to look at the bases of the lungs uh, in a way that we just simply can't capture in a bed-bound uh, supine ICU patient. And just like I've mentioned, we know uh, that those patients have relatively boring chest x-rays, but when if you ever send them through the CT scanner, Everyone's always quite astonished at the degree of basal pathology um, that lurks there in terms of de-recruitment and atelectasis. And one need only look at sort of the early, you know, lung recruitment trials and Gattinoni's work to see just how much recruitable lung is present in, in, in an occult fashion. So we tend to pick up on this. And like I said before, seeing is believing. And so if you can identify these features while you're already in the esophagus to look at the heart, it sort of becomes a one-stop shop for cardiopulmonary failure 
if you can link these two modalities together. And so we aren't the originators of this technique. It was originally described in an operative environment, but we've done several hundred studies of these HELIS exams in our ICU. And we find that we identify an enormous amount of pathology at the bases that relatively was relatively occult, both the clinical and radiographic examination. So we're quite pleased with it. And I think it has a role, especially as I think the role, role of transesophageal echo continues to grow as a mainstay of reliable cardiac imaging in our ICU environments, throwing in the lungs as the, as the, uh, the, sort of the, the dessert on top of that exam uh, does, adds a lot of value. Now, finally, Rob, you're involved with a project known as Deep Breathe. What can you tell us about that project? Uh, yeah, thanks, Todd. Deep Breathe is something uh, I'm particularly excited about, which I, I sort of laid a bit of a, 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 a hint to, uh, to previously when I talked about AI, but um, it's an AI project uh, devoted to uh, two things. One, replicating the human ability to interpret lung ultrasound through deep learning and computer vision models. We, through our very elaborate training program here at Western University, have developed a, a large repository of well-labeled data, which we can use to train uh, computer classifiers to be able to replicate what perhaps I could do or you could do with some training, um, which is you know standard computer vision techniques, but applied to medical imaging, which is exciting, uh, especially when you add it into a point of care device, because then now the reach of that is very different than radiology AI where you it has to be attached to say a CT scanner or even an X-ray machine, which isn't nearly as portable as a, a tablet with a probe on it. But the other piece that we've discovered is that there's there's uh, the field of radiomics is the field where uh, that acknowledges that pictures aren't images, they're data. And ultimately when a computer can ingest data or Im uh, the images quantitatively, they can identify patterns that are simply elusive to human vision. The visual cortex we possess was not designed to look at non-contiguous pixels and form patterns, for instance, where that information may be available. And so we've identified some examples where diseases may have their own unique uh, digital biomarkers or QR codes, as I think of them sort of emblazoned inside the lung image that might be offered the ability to tell the difference between um, various types of pneumonia, uh, viral versus bacterial, we wonder. And we've shown that COVID, for instance, uh, indistinguishable from the human eye from uh, other bacterial pneumonias actually seems to, to, to be able to be speciated by computer vision models. So lending, lending strength to that hypothesis. So we're very excited about it. Rob Arnfield, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your insights into lung ultrasound. Todd, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our great podcast interviews, modules, journal reviews, quizzes, and articles by downloading the free app. Search for My Osler where you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.